So we've talked about pretty much all there is to say about the jhanas. Uh, now it's just a matter of practice. <clears throat> but there's certainly lots more to the Dhamma than the jhanas. And so what I want to talk about for the next four talks is dependent origination. In Majjhima 28, verse 28, Sariputta quotes the Buddha as saying, One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. One who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. And yeah, it's a pretty important topic. In fact, I actually wrote a book on it. I'll stick the link to the book in the chat. Save it for after the retreat. Okay. Uh, I mean, basically, I'm just going to tell you what's in the book. It's a free book. You can download it. There's PDF, there's Kindle, there's Nook, you know, EPUB, various versions. So you can probably find one that will work for you. Now, when dependent origination gets talked about, usually what's talked about is the 12 links of dependent origination. But the 12 links of dependent origination are, well, a bit obscure. They appear to be the latest development in dependent origination. Carolyn Reese Davids, who was one of the early translators of Pali into English, referred to dependent origination as a curious old rune. Uh, not really obvious what's going on here, uh, especially since you got 12 links and the next to the last link is birth. I mean, you know, most things, if they have births associated with it, that, that's near the beginning, not the next to the last thing. Uh, so in order to understand dependent origination, rather than starting to talk about the 12 links, I'm going to start at the beginning. Imagine that. Of course, that only raises the question, what's the beginning? Well, I mentioned earlier that in the Kudika Nikaya, the miscellaneous collection, there is... Uh, a, a, a collection called the Sutta Nipata, the Little Sutta Collection. And the Sutta Nipata has five books, and book four appears to be very early material. That's where the material about not holding to fixed views and a number of suttas on not holding to fixed views occurs. But also in there, there is Sutta Nipata 4.11, which I think is the original dependent origination sutta. The sutta is entitled Quarrels and Disputes. And it begins with someone asking, why do quarrels and disputes occur? And the answer is because people find things endearing. In other words, quarrels and disputes buttes arise dependent on the endearing. But but why does why do people find things endearing? Because they're desirable. Why do people find things desirable? 
It is said in this world, it is pleasant, it is not pleasant. What do the pleasant and not pleasant depend upon? Contact, sense contact. What does sense contact depend upon? Namarupa. Namarupa is a very interesting phrase. Nama, name, rupa, form, name and form. Uh, sometimes you see it translated as mind and body or mentality and materiality. Uh, it gets used in slightly different ways. You got to sort of check out the context. Independent origination, it has a lot of context that points to mind and body. It also could be uh, concept and manifestation. So when I say cell phone, yeah, everybody knows what a cell phone is. That's a concept. Yeah, this is the manifestation of a cell phone, right? Uh, if I say computer screen, you know what that is, but when you look right in front of you, you actually see a computer screen. Right? If I say noise, you know what noise is. And then if I were to make a loud noise, yeah, you would know that as the manifestation. So basically, quarrels and disputes arise dependent on what's endearing. What's endearing arises dependent on desirable, desirable on pleasant and unpleasant, pleasant and unpleasant on sense contact. And sense contact, well, that arises dependent on namarupa. We could say mind and body. This actually makes pretty good sense. I mean, think about the things that you might get upset about, uh, quarrels and disputes. Uh, somebody says that your car is their car. They're going to get, you know, you're going to get a little upset about that. No, it's my car. I paid for it, right? You may not find it endearing, but you're certainly clinging to it, right? You're not willing to let it go. I mean, if some stranger walks up to you and says, hey, can I have your car? You're not going to go, oh, sure, here, have the keys, right? And the things that we find endearing are those that are desirable. In fact, if there's something that we crave, we definitely find it endearing if we get it. Uh, and the desirable, the things we crave, well, that arises dependent on the pleasant and the unpleasant. This morning, Matt talks about Vedna, right? The pleasant Vedna, the unpleasant Vedna, and the Vedna that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So in this particular sutta, the word Vedna doesn't appear. It's a different word, but it's pretty similar. It's just got two possibilities, pleasant and unpleasant. And the pleasant and unpleasant arises from sense contact, just like Vedna arises from sense contact. And the sense contacts are part of having a mind and body. Now, if you're familiar with the 12 links of dependent origination, basically what it says that corresponds to this is old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, and all the rest of the dukkha arises dependent on clinging. 
So uh, quarrels and disputes, yep, that's definitely dukkha. And clinging, I mean, the things you cling to are the things you find endearing. And clinging arises dependent on craving. Craving and desire are often used synonymously in the suttas, where you would expect to read uh, craving, you might find the word desire. An example of this would be Middle Length Discourse 109, which is actually a, a rather interesting discourse. And desire arises dependent on Vedana, or desire arises dependent on the pleasant and unpleasant. Craving arises dependent on pleasant and unpleasant. Now, some of the craving could be to get rid of something. If there's something pleasant, you want to get it. But if there's something unpleasant, you want to get rid of it or keep it away. Right? And this craving, the craving is really about the object. I want to get that. And the clinging, that's really about the subject. I now own this. Now it's mine. So dukkha arises dependent on clinging, arises dependent upon craving, arises dependent on vedna, and the vedna arises dependent on sense contact. Within one-tenth of a second, you're going to decide whether that sense contact is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. And we have a tendency to run after the pleasant and run away from the unpleasant and ignore the neutral. The sense contacts are part of having a mind and body. This is the earliest depiction of dependent origination. At least I think it is. The words that are used in Sutta Nipata 4.11 are not the usual words for the most part, but the concepts are very similar. And there are suttas where the words that are used match the concepts in uh, Sutta Nipata 4.11. So basically what the Buddha is saying, you have a mind and body and you're going to get sense contacts. And they are going to produce Vedana. And it would be really good if you got your mindfulness in there at the point of the Vedana arising so that you don't fall into craving and clinging because those are necessary conditions that can lead to dukkha. Right? So if you don't want dukkha, don't do the craving and clinging. To prevent the craving and clinging, Get your mindfulness, second establishment of mindfulness, talked about today, get that mindfulness in there at the Vedana step. Enjoy the pleasant, no problem with that. Deal with the unpleasant, no problem with that. Just don't let either the pleasant or the unpleasant run off into craving. We're going to be getting sense contacts. You have to have them to survive. They're part of having a mind and body. This is the heart of the links of dependent origination. This is what it's all about. Now, we have the 12 links. Actually, we have, we have the six links, which I just put there. Sometimes we find fewer, like in uh, the Four Noble Truths, right? Uh, dukkha arises dependent on craving 
There's just two links right there. But it's, it's an example of dependent origination. As I said, the Four Noble Truths are dependent origination in Twitter style. Okay, a summary of some of the key points. But we find seven links and nine links and ten links and eleven links and twelve links. It, it varies from at, throughout the suttas. And sometimes we find the same words that are used in Sutta Nipata 4.11, very rarely but occasionally. And mostly we find this other set of words. And those other words, yeah, they have more words inserted in there, which takes this fairly obvious thing of, yeah, you get sense contacts, it produces Vedana, don't get caught in craving and clinging, or that'll lead to Dukkha. And it takes that pretty obvious, really easy thing to understand and obscures it. What the Twelve Links say, starting again at the Dukkha end of it, Dukkha arises dependent on birth. Well, this makes sense, right? If you don't get born, you don't experience Dukkha. It's not a particularly useful solution, but because I, I can tell every one of you already got born. So you can't do anything about that, okay? Being born's a popular thing to do, right? Uh, Mother Nature has this urge to become. Any species that didn't have this urge to become well, it died out, it's gone extinct, right? So this becoming force, this urge to become, that's what leads to birth, right? Birth depends on becoming. Becoming is said to be dependent on clinging. It's sort of a switch of context in there. Uh, yeah, the 12 links, yeah, no wonder Carolyn Reese David called it a curious old rune. Uh, we could say that, okay, look at the building you're sitting in, right? It, it's a bunch of wood and glass and metal. And then they all clung together and it became a building. So the clinging made the becoming happen. Now, as I said, that's a switch of context. It's, it, it's sometimes in the 12 links just a little weird there. Okay, the clinging, yeah, we talked about that clinging to the endearing, and the clinging arises dependent on craving. The craving is, I want it. The clinging is, I got it, and it's mine. And the craving arises dependent on the Vedana, which arises dependent on sense contact. And in the 12 links, it says sense contact is dependent on the six senses. And of course, that makes sense, Right? And the six senses are part of having a mind and body, Namarupa. Now, a mind and body only functions if it's conscious. If you have a mind and body and you're not conscious, well, they can keep you alive with, you know, sticking tubes in you. But really, that's not alive. That's just, yeah keeping your organs functioning, but you're not really alive if you're not conscious. I mean, we, we do go unconscious every night, but, you know, you got to come back the next day. If you don't, you're in a coma, and, yeah, pretty soon you're going to be dead. So mind and body is dependent on consciousness. There's a mutual dependency, though, there that is also gets pointed out. 
Consciousness arises dependent on mind and body. Consciousness arises on the interaction between mind and body. If you have a body with no mind, yeah, that's not going to be conscious. That's dead. And if you have a mind with no body, oh, well, a lot of you live in England. You have a lot more ghosts over there than we do here in the States. So maybe you know more about it than me. But I, I don't find any minds wandering around without a body. So you got to have, yeah, mind and body. And they have to interact in order to have consciousness happen. Consciousness in Buddhism always has an object. So consciousness arises dependent on its object. And the object is Sankara. Sankara is a very important word in Buddhism. It gets translated a bunch of different ways. Sometimes you see it as compounded things. Uh, sometimes it's... Uh, well, in, in dependent origination, it's sometimes karmic formations. You sometimes see it as formations. In the teaching on the khandas, the aggregates, you find it as mental formations. Uh, I think the best translation are Tanisaro Bhikkhu's fabrications and Santikaro's concoctions. I like both of those words because they have the sense of not quite true. You know, he came home last night and concocted some story about a flat tire. It was really late. Uh, concocted or fabricated. Uh, basically, in its most basic meaning, a sankara means anything that is created, anything that's made. So your computer's a sankara. The table it's sitting on is a sankara. The house you're sitting in is a sankara. The memory of your first grade teacher is a sankara. Your telephone number is a sankara. Right? You're a sankara. I'm a sankara. All the things of creation are sankara in the broadest term. Now, as I said, in the Khandas, the aggregates, Sankara refers to mental activities, really. So your thoughts, emotions, memories, intentions, those are Sankaras. It's yeah, given a more definite feeling than the broadest sense. But independent origination, it basically is the object of consciousness. Whatever you're conscious of, that's a Sankara. With one well, not minor exception. Nibbana is not a sankara. Nibbana is a phenomena. Okay, but everything else you could possibly be conscious of, that's a sankara. And sankaras rise dependent on ignorance. Right? We don't really know what's going on. The the universe is actually a holistic unfolding. It's, it's not made of a whole bunch of independent parts. We like to think they're independent, but they're not. Everything is dependent on other things. You're dependent upon, well, 
unless you're growing all your own food, you're dependent upon the shop where you buy your food and the people who grow the food and the people who transport it from the people who grow the food to the shop where you buy it. And your electricity, I mean, uh, even if you have solar panels on your roof, you're dependent on somebody manufacturing those solar panels, right? And yeah, it just goes on and on. The dependencies are everywhere. And we miss out on those dependencies. And we start seeing individual bits and pieces of the universe. We bust it up into these sankharas because our little pea brains can't take in the whole universe. In order to have a brain big enough to take in the entire universe, it would need to be as big as the entire universe, which that's not going to work because your brain then would be part of the universe, so it has to be as big as your brain and the entire universe. Yeah, you get into a regression there. So we chop it up into bits and pieces. These are sankharas, and these are the objects of our consciousness. We need a mind and body in order to have that consciousness, and that consciousness keeps our mind and body functioning. Part of having a mind and body is having senses, which get sense contacts, which produce Vedna. And if you're not careful, if you don't get your mindfulness in there, you wind up doing craving and clinging, and that'll lead to becoming birth, old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair, and all the rest of the dukkha. The most famous depiction of the 12 links of dependent origination is the Tibetan Wheel of Life. It's a, it's a number of concentric circles. In the center, in the bullseye position, there's a rooster, a pig, and a snake, each biting the tail of the other. The rooster is greed, the snake is hatred, and the pig is delusion. Surrounding that, in the next ring, is being coming out of states of woe up to good, nice states, and then falling back down into states of woe. This is samsara. Surrounding that is the part where the artist has the most fun, because it represents the six realms of existence. Actually, in Buddhism, there are 31 realms of existence, but the heavenly realms all get squished down to one when it's the six realms of existence. Down at the bottom are the hell realms, and those are, well, they're depicted in ways that Dante would be proud of, you know, people being boiled alive, or eaten alive, or walking through a forest where all the leaves are swords, or yeah, anything you can think of that's really nasty. You can put that down in the bottom section there, the hell realms. Above that is the realm of the hungry ghost. These are creatures who had giant bellies and little necks. In their previous life, they were very greedy, and now they can't ever get full. Also in the lower realms are the warring gods, the Asuras. These are beings that are always fighting. I think their headquarters is in a large five-sided building south of Washington, D.C. Um, not sure about that. Okay, but yeah, beings that are always fighting. And then we have the animal realm. This is the only realm that we see on a regular basis besides the human realm. And the artist has fun, you know, drawing bunny rabbits and deer and squirrels and all the cute little animals. Then there's the human realm, and the artist draws people doing things like 
farming and eating and sleeping and you know, having fun. And then up at the top is the heavenly realms, and that's depicted as people sitting on clouds. They're playing lutes rather than harps. Uh, they're eating ambrosia, you know, the usual stuff you do in heaven. But the most important ring is the outer ring, where the 12 links of dependent origination are depicted. Up at 12 o'clock, we have ignorance. And that's depicted as an old blind person trying to make their way through a forest. Arising dependent on ignorance is Sankaras. Sankaras are depicted as a potter sitting at a wheel making pots. Some of the pots are very nice, some are broken, some are misshapen. Since the people that came up with this were thinking of Sankara as karmic formations, so some of your karma is very nice and some of it's broken and misshapen. Or you could think of there are all sorts of things of creation and some are very nice and some are broken and misshapen. Arising dependent on Sankara is consciousness. That's depicted as a monkey swinging through the trees, grabbing first one branch and then another. You might have encountered this monkey mind at some point in the recent past. Arising dependent on consciousness is mind and body. Mind and body is depicted as two people in a boat. One is pulling the boat along, and the other is lying prone as it's just along for the ride. So, homework for you. You get to figure out which one's mind and which one's body. Right? Now, clearly the one with the pole is deciding where the boat goes, so there's your hint. So, Figure this out. Get concentrated and take a look. See who's in charge, your mind or your body. Arising dependent on mind and body are the six senses. <coughs> That's depicted as a house with five windows and a door. The five windows are the five external senses and the door is the mind. Arising dependent on the senses is sense contact, and that's a couple embracing. Arising dependent on sense contact is Vedana, and that's depicted as a man having arrows shot into his eyes. Unpleasant Vedana. Arising dependent on Vedana is craving. Craving is an enormously fat person sitting at a table that's heavily laden with food. Arising dependent on craving is clinging. That's someone picking fruit and putting it into baskets that are so full, the fruit simply rolls out onto the ground. Arising dependent on clinging is becoming, and that's a pregnant woman. Arising dependent on becoming is birth, and that's a woman with a newborn. And arising dependent upon birth is death, and that's depicted as a corpse. So that's a mnemonic way to remember these. Remember, this is being taught to people that didn't have even paper. They didn't have this written down. So this circle, they could look at that 
you know, carved into something and get a sense of what it is when it is explained to them. And then they could remember the 12 links of dependent origination. So what does it mean? How should we interpret the 12 links? Well, <clears throat> the orthodox interpretation is that it depicts three lifetimes. In your previous life, you were ignorant and you created karmic formations, which have led to your birth in this life, although the word birth doesn't get mentioned. It's led to the arising of your consciousness and your mind and body in this life, which has senses, which get sense contacts, which produce Vedna. And if you're not careful, <clears throat> that leads to craving and clinging. And that's this life. And then <clears throat> the becoming birth and death. See, you're clinging so much to being alive that that produces becoming in your future life so that you'll get born, but you're going to die there anyhow. Now, that's the orthodox interpretation of dependent origination. This is what you'll find in the Vasudhi Maga. On a scale of 1 to 10, I give the orthodox three-live model interpretation of dependent origination exactly a zero of being true. You know, there's no sutta that really it points to a three-lifetime model. There is a sutta that points to a two-lifetime model. That's number 15 in the Long Discourses, and that's one way to interpret it there. But the multiple lifetime model of dependent origination, I am afraid, was invented by people who had an immortality project. You know, immortality project, that's, that's when you don't really want to die, when your body gives out. So you figure out some way that, yeah, you're going to continue. You know, like you'll go to heaven or you'll get reborn or something like that. You know, lots of people have immortality projects. I mean, let's face it. The whole thing about you're going to die and it's the only certain piece of information you have about the future that can be a little bit disturbing. And so we're looking for some way to deal with this disturbing piece of information. And so people took the Buddha's teaching on dependent origination, missed the whole point of the thing, and started doing it as three lifetime model to prove they weren't really gonna die. Better interpretation is the moment to moment interpretation. There's a very excellent book by Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa called Under the Bodhi Tree. And in that, he talks about the moment-to-moment -moment interpretation of dependent origination. When I was writing my book on dependent origination, I got a serious writer's block when I got to the chapter where trying to describe the moment-to-moment -moment dependent origination. I mean, how could I write anything? when Ajahn Buddhadasa had done a brilliant job and written a whole book, and here I'm trying to write it in a chapter. Uh, eventually, I got past the writer's block, but yeah, it's, it's a good book. What I really wanted to write for that chapter was now go read Ajahn Buddhadasa's book on dependent origination and then come back to this one, which you can do if you're reading my book, okay? Anyhow, basically... You have a conscious mind and body. You get, in the, you have senses and you get sense contacts. 
and it's going to produce Vedna. If you don't get your mindfulness in there right away, it'll lead to craving and clinging, and then you will become the one who's clinging, and this will give birth to your sense of self. But since your self is an illusion, something you made up, it's subject to dying, and you got to do it all over again. So there, dependent origination operates with every sense contact, not over three lifetimes. After all, the Buddha said the Dhamma is visible here and now. Uh, and he equated the Dhamma and dependent origination in three lifetimes. I don't think three lifetimes is visible here and now. So I'm going to go with the moment to moment. I'll give you an example of how it works. Let's say you've never had a mango. You've heard about mangoes, and you go to the shop, and in the produce section there's a sign that says mangoes, and you're like, oh yeah, I've heard about mangoes, they're supposed to be good. So you buy a mango, and you take it home, and well, you figure out you gotta peel it, and so you peel it and you make a big mess, because that's what happens when you attack the mango for the first time. All right, so now you've got a piece of mango, right, and You've got a mind and body that's conscious, and you've got six senses, including your tongue. Contact. Mango hits the tongue. Vedna. Pleasant. Very pleasant Vedna. I'll have some more. Oh, this is really good. Next time I go to the store, I'm going to get another mango. In fact, my friends, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, they've never had a mango. I'm going to turn them on to the mangoes. So you go back to the store, you get a, another mango, you go see your friends, you bring them a mango. They're like, oh, cool, a mango. And they eat the mango. And, oh, this is great. Thank you so much. And you're feeling really good. And you next time you go see your friends, you bring another mango because you have become the mango bringer, right? And you're defining yourself as the one who brings the mangoes. And every time you see your friends, you're bringing a mango. And after a little while, they're like, what's with all the mangoes? Uh-oh, death of the mango bringer, right? This is what we're doing. So the moment-to-moment -moment interpretation isn't birth in your next life or this life. It's the birth of the sense of self, the birth of your ego, based on your sensory input, based on the fact that you can't do craving or clinging without having somebody who wants to get it or who's got it. The self has to be there for the craving and clinging. So when you do the craving and clinging, you're becoming that self and you give birth to your sense of self which is fragile and winds up dying, and you got to do it all over again with another sensory input. This is a much better way of looking at it, right? But the 12 links of dependent origination are actually only an example of dependent origination. It's the example par excellence, but the real heart of the matter is the this-that conditionality. Remember when the Buddha was reluctant to teach, he said, this generation is addicted to its lifestyle. It's going to be difficult for people addicted to their lifestyle to understand this important thing. This-that conditionality dependent origination. <clears throat> This general principle of dependent origination 
is actually even more important than the 12 links. And unfortunately, uh, it doesn't really get talked about when someone is teaching dependent origination. It's all over the suttas. I mean, you read the suttas, you're going to come across it quite frequently. And basically, it's, it's uh, necessary conditions. This arises dependent on that. If that doesn't happen, this doesn't happen. And looking at the world and realizing that things arise dependent on other things. In fact, everything, it turns out, arises dependent on other things. Nothing stands alone. It's not that everything arises dependent on everything else, but everything arises on enough other things, and those things are dependent on still other things, that we wind up with a huge unitary net called the universe. Right? And realizing this interconnectedness of everything, or interrelatedness of everything, is actually probably the most important aspect of this, that conditionality dependent origination. <clears throat> the Buddha's strategy for getting out of dukkha is to uproot the craving and clinging, right? That's, you know, that's what the second and third noble truth are about, okay? <clears throat> but the Buddha tells you don't, don't crave, you still go around craving. So the way to uproot the craving and clinging is to penetrate the illusion of the craver, the clinger. I feels like a really solid thing. I am the little guy sitting behind my eyeballs looking out. I am the one that makes my arm go up when I decide I want my arm to go up. I, 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 I. Well, that sense of self is also dependently originated. And we need to take a close look at that. This is what the second discourse, the discourse on not-self, is about. Basically there, the Buddha says, look at yourself in terms of, well, all the possibilities of how you construct yourself. Sometimes it's your body. Sometimes it's your Vedana. Sometimes it's your concepts. Sometimes it's your thoughts, your memories, your intentions, your emotions. And sometimes it's your consciousness. In that sutta, he says, look and see that every one of those is anicca, impermanent. That they don't bring lasting happiness. That they're not worth calling me, myself. Now, this points to the self that we're trying to penetrate. It's the part of me that someday is going to be eternally happy. So we want the eternally happy self. It's more like the soul principle. If they had translated atta as soul and anatta is not soul, that probably would have been a little more accurate. The self in Buddhism is the mechanism for basically continuation after you die. It's the fulfillment of your immortality project. And the Buddha says, your body's not going to work out for that. 
Your Vedna, well, they're coming and going all the time. That's not going to work out. Uh, what about your concepts? Uh, well, your concepts change, and sometimes you misconceive what's going on. You misperceive what's happening. That better not be me, because <laughs> it's not so accurate. And your thoughts, well, you change your mind all the time. Your emotions, they certainly come and go. Your memories, uh, yeah. Your memories, they just seem to get weaker the older you get. You don't want to be your memories when they're doing this thing of not being really reliable like they used to be. Your intentions, well, you change your mind about your intentions. So that's not going to work. Consciousness, and that's the one most people want to run to. They want to say, my self is my consciousness. And it's, it's understandable that somebody would want to think that. Because every time I look, I'm conscious. I've never seen myself not be conscious, right? It's got to be me. Of course, then if you actually pay attention, you go unconscious every night. In deep, dreamless sleep, you're unconscious. Where'd your consciousness go? Was it off someplace else? If it went somewhere else, how does it know to come back to you? What if we got mixed up last night and you were the one teaching yesterday and I got mixed up and now I'm the one teaching. Uh, so if it goes somewhere, how does it know how to come back? And if it doesn't go somewhere, what happened when it's not there? Well, it turns out it's a dependently originated thing, right? We saw that already. The Buddha had a monk named Sati, the son of a fisherman. And Sati thought that his consciousness transmigrated from incarnation to incarnation. He said, as I understand the teachings of the Blessed One, it is this very consciousness that roams and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another. And the monks heard that this was what Sati was saying, and they went to him and they said, Sati, don't say that. The Buddha has said on many occasions that consciousness is dependently originated, for without a condition there is no origination of consciousness. But Sati stubbornly clung to his view. And when those monks couldn't persuade him to let it go, they went to see the Buddha. Saluted, sat down to one side, told the Buddha what had happened. And the Buddha said to one of the monks, Tell Sati the master calls. So that monk went and found Sati and said, Friend Sati, the master calls you. So Sati went to see the Buddha saluted, sat down at one side. The Buddha said, Sati, is it true that you think that I teach that it is this very consciousness which roams and wanders through the rounds of rebirth, not another? Yes, Venerable Sir, that's what I understand. Sati, what is consciousness? Venerable Sir, consciousness is that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there the result of good and bad actions. So what do you think of Sati's definition of consciousness? That which speaks and feels, now remember feel is feels the Vedana, and gets the re karmic resultants, the results of good and bad actions. So you like Sati's definition? 
The Buddha responds, You foolish man, when have you ever known me to teach Dhamma like that? For I have said on many occasions that consciousness is dependently originated. For without a condition, there is no origination of consciousness. Monks, do you understand the Dhamma I teach like this monk, Sati? No, venerable sir, for on many occasions you have said consciousness is dependently originated. Good, monks, it's good that you understand that. But this poor fellow, Sati, has stored up much demerit, and he will be known by his pernicious view for a long time. And here we are, two and a half thousand years later, and we know about poor old Sati because of his pernicious view. The Buddha says, I will question the monks. And then there starts a long series of question and answers. The first question is, monks, do you see that this has arisen? Now, the commentaries try and figure out what the this is. And the commentaries decide that the Buddha pointed to himself and said, do you see this has arisen? Or do you, do you see my body has arisen? I don't think that's what's going on. I think what the Buddha is saying is, monks, when something arises, do you understand this has arisen? Yes, venerable sir. Monks, can you understand this has arisen dependent upon that? Yes, venerable sir. Monks, sometimes is it confusing and you're not sure what this has arisen dependent upon? Yes, venerable sir. This question about the monks understanding this, that conditionality goes on for a while. And then the Buddha says, monks, consciousness is reckoned by the condition on which it depends. When consciousness arises dependent upon sight and eye, it's eye consciousness. When it arises dependent on ear and sounds, sound consciousness. When it arises dependent upon nose and smells, nose consciousness. Tongue and taste, tongue consciousness. Body and textures, body consciousness. Mind and mind objects, mind consciousness. Just like a fire is reckoned by the condition on which it depends. If a fire is burning in a forest, it's a forest fire. If it's burning on a house, it's a house fire. If it's burning on rubbish, it's a rubbish fire. If it's burning on chaff, it's a chaff fire. If it's burning on cow dung, it's cow dung fire. In just the same way, consciousness is reckoned by the condition on which it depends. So the Buddha is saying that consciousness depends on sensory input, either five sense input coming from the outside or six sense input, which would be your thoughts, your emotions, your memories, your intentions. And we reckon, we name consciousness like that. Okay? And then what follows after that? Well, it's a question and answer series that gets really tedious. It's a catechism, if you're familiar with that term. A series of question and answers that you're supposed to know the answers to. Uh, you can see where this would be useful for the monks who are learning about dependent origination. Because first we get the 12 links in forward arising order. And then we get a questionnaire about them in the forward ceasing 
no, in the reverse arising order. And then we get a recapitulation on the arising. And then we get the ceasing, forward ceasing order, reverse ceasing order, recapitulation. It's a very tedious passage. goes on for three or four pages. Uh, one of the most tedious passages in the suttas. I suspect that it was a later insertion. Uh, Govind C. Pandey in his book Studies in the Origin of Buddhism clued me into this and pointed out that this looks like it's later. There's certainly a very different tone to what's being presented. The first part is, well, it's like a story and then suddenly it gets all this question and answer stuff that yeah, sort of goes off the rails. And I suspect, since there was some question and answer in the original, somebody decided, oh, we can put a few more question and answers in here. When the monks are memorizing this, they'll get the dependent origination really well because they'll have to memorize all the question and answers. And so that winds up in there. But eventually, the sutta comes back to the heart of the matter. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, that is, in terms of dependent origination, would you run back to the past wondering, was I? Was I not? What was I? Being what? What did I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, would you run off to the future wondering, will I be? Won't I be? What will I be? Being what? What will I become? No, venerable sir. Monks, knowing and seeing in this way, in terms of dependent origination, would you be inwardly perplexed about the present, wondering, am I? Am I not? What am I? Where did this being come from? What will happen to it? No, venerable sir. Monks, are you saying this just because I'm your teacher? No, venerable sir. Monks, are you saying this because you know this from your own experience? Yes, venerable sir. Good, monks. It's good that you know this from your own experience. So, basically, what the Buddha is saying, don't identify with your consciousness. It's dependently originated. If you can really see the world in terms of dependent origination, if you can see yourself in terms of dependent origination, instead of an entity, then the thought what was I in the past, or what will I be in the future, or what am I now, just doesn't occur. I already brought up the simile, if you fall off the edge of the world, does it hurt? You know, do you land on something and it hurts? Or do you starve to death, or do you fall so fast you catch on fire? Or, well, if you don't believe in the edge of the world, if, you, if the edge of the world is not part of your worldview, a question like that does not occur to you. If you understand the depths of this, that conditionality, as it applies to you, then you don't ask the question, was I in the past? What will I be in the future? What am I now? It simply doesn't occur. You have a different understanding. You see that this sense of self is a constructed thing. I like to say that it's part of Sotapai. 
S-O-D-A-P-I, streams of dependently arising processes interacting. Because, well, that's all we are. We're a collection of processes. You have your circulatory process, your digestive process, your endocrine process, your immune system is a bunch of processes. We're a collection of processes. I heard a talk by Joseph Goldstein. He said, you should think of yourself as a verb rather than a noun. I thought that was really good. And then I got to thinking about it, and what I realized was it's all verbs. It's just that some nouns move kind of slow, right? But it's all changing all the time. It's all stuff just rising dependent on other things and sticking around and changing and then eventually disappearing. That's all that's going on. And it's not just this is dependent on that one thing. There's a lot of things that come in. Remember, we've already tonight talked about how consciousness is dependent on mind and body. Consciousness is dependent on sankhara, the object. And consciousness is dependent on sensory input. Right? So lots of things have many things they depend on. And the streams of dependently arising processes that are interacting right here that I call me, some of them we share. I'm speaking to you in English, right? That's because some people from England sailed to North America. They ran off the Dutch. They ran off the French. They ran off the Spanish. They suppressed the natives. And in northern North America, where I grew up, that's the language I learned. Plus, there were Englishmen who went all over the world and spread the English language all over the world so that it's become the international language. And so even those of you who, for whom English is not your mother tongue, yeah, to come on this retreat, you're going to need to speak English. And that's quite possible because English is quite widespread. We're all part of that stream of English colonialism. We speak the way we speak because of English colonialism, right? So we have this these streams in common, but uh, none of you have the stream of high school in Leland, Mississippi in common with me. I know because it was a small school and I didn't see any one of you there, right? You've got your own streams for your education, your family of origin, who your friends were, what movies you've seen. Maybe I've seen some of the movies you've seen, the books you've read, the courses you've taken. We have the stream of the Buddha's teachings coming at us. We share a lot of streams, but we also have some very unique streams. And that's all we are. Some of the streams are genetic. Some of the streams are the food you've eaten and the air you've breathed and the water you drink. It's made you who you are today, both your rupa, your body, and your nama, your mind. They're just the result of lots of streams of dependently arising processes interacting. Now, this idea of streams occurred to me. I was looking at a YouTube video about a contest between a number of fire brigades, fire departments. In a big city, they would come together and have contests. 
you know, like who could put the ladder up the fastest and who could shoot the water the furthest, I guess. But the one that I was interested in, one of the contests, they get a giant rubber ball, like two meters, six feet in diameter, right? And then they get four hoses on each side of the ball from one fire brigade company and they squirt the water at the base of this ball and if they do it right they can raise the ball up in the air and I guess the contest is see how high they can raise it or how long they can keep it up or something like that but what's supporting the ball well you could say water but it's the streams of water it, it, it's not a single water molecule. It's lots of water molecules. It's, it's much more a verb supporting that ball up in the air than a noun, right? There are streams making the ball rise. Well, there are streams of dependently arising processes making us what we are. We're just the intersection of a bunch of those streams. But it doesn't stop there. Because, you see, you act based on the streams that have come in, and you're putting your streams back out into the environment. This is the teaching on karma. Remember, karma is actions. And your actions have consequences. They're streams going out into the environment. I'm sitting here talking tonight. I'm throwing streams out of my mouth at you. It's going to have some sort of impact on you, which is going to determine who you become in the future, if this makes any sense to you, right? And the farmer who grew the food that you ate today at lunch, yeah, his actions, yeah, that stream is feeding you right now. And the person that picked the food and the truck driver that drove it to the shop and the shopkeeper and, yeah, all these streams coming together. Can you see the world as nothing but streams of dependently arising processes interacting? This is the general principle of dependent origination, and it gives you a much bigger picture. And it points out Sati's flaw. Sati is giving his consciousness independent existence. Right? And so I've got this consciousness in my head, and it, when I die, it's just going to go find a new body and I'll keep going forever. He's got his immortality project intact until, yeah, the Buddha points out that's not what the Buddha teaches. Consciousness is just another dependently arising process. That's all that's going on. So this is an introduction to dependent origination. The links, including the 12 links, the moment-to-moment interpretation of dependent origination, and the more important general principle of dependent origination, that everything arises dependent on other things, and that actually all there are are streams of dependently arising processes interacting. If I've messed with your immortality project, uh, sorry, I don't really know what happens after we die. I got no memory of ever having died. I've heard lots of theories. I haven't seen anything that gives me proof that it's one way or another. But when I look at it, all I see is streams of dependently arising processes interacting. So, questions, comments?